This is a talk I gave a couple years ago in my ward here in Cranbrook. It was the first talk I gave after I was released from the bishopric. It had come together after I was uh, doing some studying on the miracles of Jesus Christ and uh, was impressed to write down my thoughts and impressions and study these miracles in depth. Uh, and then when I was called upon to speak in church with fairly short notice, I already had had many of my thoughts written down and just had to put them into a co more cohesive uh understanding, I guess, that uh, someone other than myself could understand. So, here's my talk. After preaching in parables about faith and belief by the Sea of Galilee, the Savior turned to his apostles and said, Let us pass over unto the other side. Then they all gathered into boats and launched forth. As I envision this scene, I imagine a group of faithful disciples being filled with the Spirit after hearing the Master teach, excitedly pushing off for distant shores with enthusiasm at the prospect of bringing the Savior of the world and his message to those on the other side. But shortly after pushing off, Jesus fell asleep, and a great storm arose. This storm was so great that the apostles, many of whom were experienced fishermen, were filled with fear and were in danger. The scriptures do not tell us how long they struggled in these conditions, as they worked with all their might in a battle for their mortal lives, as they fought to get their boat to the other side. Eventually, their fear was so great that they could not continue, and so they woke the master and pled with him, Carest thou not that we perish? Jesus arose and rebuked the wind, and with three simple words, calmed the sea. Peace, be still. This was still very early in the mortal ministry of Jesus, and especially early in the ministry of the apostles. I don't think that the apostles were expecting this miracle. I don't think that is the reason that they woke Jesus. I think that the reason they woke him was to get different directions. The last command he had given them before he fell asleep was to cross over to the other side of the lake. But the difficulty of the way caused the apostles to second-guess that command and to now seek a different direction to go. Perhaps, when Jesus saw the difficulty of the way, he would change his mind and choose a different destination. I think it is this questioning of the commandments of the Lord that caused the Savior to rebuke the apostles for their lack of faith. And what was it all for? What was on the other side that was so important? Jesus and his apostles eventually reach the other side, the country of the Gadarenes. There they meet a man who for a long time had been possessed by many devils. Jesus performs another miracle and casts the devils out of the man. The devils enter into swine who are overcome and drown themselves in the sea. When the rest of the Gadarenes heard of this, they asked Jesus to depart, for they were taken with great fear. Jesus then has a brief interaction with the man healed of the devils, and he and his apostles enter back into the boats and return to Galilee. Could it possibly be that all this effort was expended just to introduce the Savior into the life of one individual? The answer, of course, is yes. Elder Joseph B. Worthlin taught, True disciples of Jesus Christ have always been concerned for the one. Jesus Christ is our greatest example. 
He is surrounded by multitudes. He was surrounded by multitudes and spoke to thousands. Yet he always had concern for the one. End quote. But of course, it cannot be denied the profound impact that these experiences had on the apostles, those who were called to be ministers to the one. These unique experiences allowed them to get better understanding of priesthood power, better understanding of Jesus Christ's care and love for the individual, better understanding of his expectation of them to have the same care and love for the individual, better understanding that when Christ gives them a commandment, he not only expects them to fulfill it with exact obedience, but he also ensures there is a way to fulfill that commandment. I wonder if these experiences reminded Peter of a similar experience he had only a few months previous when he was called as an apostle. Jesus had entered into Peter's fishing boat and taught the multitude who had gathered to hear him at the shores of Galilee. After he was done, he asked Peter to go out to the deep and cast down his nets. Peter was a professional fisherman, and here is the Savior who was a carpenter by trade, telling Peter how to fish. In Peter's response, there is perhaps a gentle rebuke or reminder that Peter knows how to fish, and also that the fish weren't biting, so to speak. He advises Jesus that they have already been fishing all night and caught nothing. He could have added that the best time to catch fish was long gone, that he knew these waters and had been fishing them since he was a young boy, and that he was tired from working all night. How was a carpenter supposed to understand the intricacies of fishing? This was Peter's domain. Perhaps there is a bit of that in his response to Jesus. But, he continues, Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. It is unclear Peter's motivation for this. Perhaps he has a desire to prove this carpenter wrong and show that there was no fish to catch this day. Perhaps the opposite was true, and he felt that this master teacher could also teach him where to fish. Regardless of his reasons, Peter listens and obeys. However, he is not exact in his obedience. Jesus had said, let down your nets, plural, to which Peter responds, I will let down the net, singular. It was as if he was saying that he knew this was a worthless endeavor, and he was not going to waste more resources than necessary to show obedience. Unfortunately, this results in his net breaking because as he hauls in his net, there is too many fish to be contained within a single net, and Peter needs to call for backup to bring the haul to shore. Peter would become one of the Lord's greatest missionaries and the leader of Christ's church after Jesus died. I think it is clear that the Savior is teaching and guiding Peter early to understand the importance of exact obedience. This powerful lesson occurs just before Peter's call to be a missionary or fisher of men. Peter had much growth to go through, and he only had three short years to do it. Soon, he would be the high priest over the whole church and responsible for the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world. He had a lifetime of devoted service that would take him to the capital of the known world, Rome where he would be crucified because of his exact obedience and not being able to deny the Savior. He and his apostles, uh, sorry, he and his apostle associates needed to be changed by the Savior. Uh, 
so that they could go and change the world. After this miracle, Peter falls down at Jesus' knees and gives a similar request as the Gadarenes would in the future. He asks the Savior to depart from him because Peter is a sinful man. I love that he falls down at Jesus' knees. It is of utmost importance that we likewise fall down at Jesus' feet when we see him again. He is more than a casual friend who we have not seen for a long time. He is our God and our Redeemer and deserves our respect and worship. I love James Farrell's book, Falling to Heaven, that points out that we don't get to heaven by reaching up, but by falling down at the Savior's feet. He points out something uh, from Lehi's vision of the tree of life that I had never noticed before, despite having studied these scriptures many times and even giving my farewell talk as a missionary on the tree of life. He points out that those who stayed at the tree fell down and partook. It is interesting that it does not talk about them reaching up to get the fruit of the tree. That's what you would normally expect if you were to gather fruit from a tree, to reach up and grab it and then partake. But they fell down at the tree, which is, of course, a symbolic representation of Jesus Christ and his fruit of eternal life. There is something so honest and personal in Peter's falling down at Jesus' knees and asking him to depart because he did not feel himself worthy of the Savior's presence. At this very early stage of Peter's ministry, he misunderstood at least two things. First, we are all unworthy of the Savior's presence. It appears to me that Peter felt himself special in his sins and the need to be separated from the Savior. It was okay for Jesus to be among other people, but not with Peter. Peter's request was to, to depart from him. It was not a request to depart from all the people and for the Savior to sequester himself away so that all of us sinners would not have to interact with his perfection. In a very real way, this was pride. Pride in the sense that Peter felt special in his sins. Peter perhaps misunderstood that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He perhaps compared himself to the outward appearance of what he saw others doing and felt that his sins were worse. This, of course, is pride. Any comparing to others that leads us to feel different than them is pride, even when that difference that we feel is that we are not as good. God made it clear throughout the scriptures that the only measuring stick in this life is comparison to God. The purpose of why we are all here is to become like God. That is our end goal and the only comparison that we should focus on. The scripture I already quoted makes it clear that we all come short of the glory of God. None of us measure up. This is a repeated theme throughout the scriptures. Moses, after an encounter with Jehovah at the burning bush, was left so weak that he proclaimed, I know that man is nothing. King Benjamin taught his people that they were not even as much as the dust of the earth. So why should our focus be on something that we can never attain? 
I hope to get to that reason in a bit, but first I need to explore this concept a little more. It is entirely possible that Peter understood all of this and was in fact making a comparison of himself to to the Savior and knew how infinitely short he was in comparison. But this led him to the greatest pride of all, pride in the sense that the end result was a desire to separate himself from the only person who could help him overcome those sins, as he was the only person who could pay for those sins. This leads me to the second thing that Peter misunderstood. That is that, is that we do not become worthy by separating ourselves from the Savior. Peter could not become better by himself. He needed the Savior, just as we all do. After Moses proclaimed that man was nothing in comparison to God, he was visited by Satan. Satan invited Moses to worship him. Moses could have rationalized that there was too much difference between himself and God, that to become like God was impossible or too difficult. So why even try? He could have set his sights lower, much lower, and worshipped Satan. But instead, he used the experience he had just had with the Redeemer of Israel to forsake Satan. King Benjamin followed up his less-than-the-dust-of-earth discourse with three chapters about the atonement of Jesus Christ and its personal applications in our lives. After the first two chapters, King Benjamin looked around and saw that his people had fallen to the earth due to the fear of the Lord and that they viewed themselves in their own carnal state even less than the dust of the earth. But they did not wallow in this self-pity. Instead, they cried out, saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ. Often we as mortals try to improve ourselves, especially in the church of Jesus Christ. We sometimes severely misunderstand this doctrine. We take scriptures like the one found in Philippians, which states, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling to mean that it is our work, which brings our salvation We don't include the next verse as part of this process, for it is God which worketh in you. We often forget the added insight from the Book of Mormon, which includes the exact same phrase, but starts with, Come unto the Lord with all your heart, and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before Him. Salvation is not worked out by ourselves, but by coming to Jesus and recognizing the immense gap that exists between us and God due to our imperfections and weaknesses. This recognizing our weaknesses and the gap between us and God is what I believe it means to be a God-fearing people. It is one of the most important gospel principles to realize the infinite gap between us and God, and then to realize that we cannot overcome this gap alone. Christ himself summed it up best when he said to Moroni, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Notice the singular weakness referred to in the beginning of the scripture. The weakness it is talking about is our mortality and the gap between us and God. 
I guess in one sense it incorporates all our weaknesses, for it is our mortal weaknesses that are our weakness. This is one of my favorite scriptures, for it reflects my own personal experiences. I feel constantly reminded of my weakness. I have found that usually I am reminded of one or two weaknesses at a time until I humble myself enough to listen to the promptings of the Spirit to overcome this weakness. Then another weakness is pointed out. This experience rarely leaves me feeling depressed or discouraged because it is always accompanied by feelings of love and encouragement and a path forward. It is very different from having my weaknesses pointed out by other mortals or earthly exams. This process of overcoming my weaknesses often comes at stormy times in my life. It seems to me that when I come to the Lord during these stormy seasons, that all too frequently He gives me strength to face the storm rather than calming the storm. This concept is aptly described in a story from the mission of Elder John H. Groberg from The Other Side of Heaven fame. The story comes from a memoir of Elder Groberg's mission entitled In the Eye of the Storm that was eventually adapted into the Disney movie The Other Side of Heaven. In the opening chapter, he tells him an experience he that happened later in his mission. Elder Groberg and two of his companions were returning to their base island of Pongai after 10 days of preaching on some distant islands. They were on the final stretch of open ocean before they got home when the captain expressed concern about the heavy storm clouds ahead. Elder Groberg reassured his traveling companion that they were on the Lord's errand and that they had been protected through many similar storms in the past, and surely they would be protected now. So they continued on, and eventually found themselves in the midst of a furious tropical squall. Elder Groberg mentions that even in this furious storm, he had confidence that all would be well. He was certain that the Lord protected those who served him, and yet he still felt uneasy for some reason he could not explain. The waves continued to get larger, and their small motorboat struggled more and more. Up, up, up they went, with each increasingly menacing wave, and then down, down, down they went, into ever deeper valleys. They were just approaching the top of one particularly large wave, when immediately behind it appeared an even larger wave. Just as they started down the first wave, the second wave caught the front of the boat and flipped it into the air. The last thing Elder Groberg remembers before he was sent flying was the insane squealing of the, raci- squealing of the racing propeller and the captain yelling, Abandon ship! After he flew through the air, sorry, as he flew through the air, Elder Groberg thought to himself, This can't be happening. This isn't right. Where's our protection? But somewhere... Between his bruised confidence and temporary complaining, he felt a distant assurance that gave him an element of peace, and then he hit the water. While underwater, doubts and worries once again crept in. He began to worry about his scriptures, tracks, and other possessions that were in the boat. He worried about his traveling companions and was concerned that the boat would land on him. As he surfaced again, he couldn't see anyone or hear anything other than the raging storm around him. He thought again, this can't be. This isn't true. I'm a missionary. This isn't supposed to happen. I'm not supposed to swim. And yet it was true. 
He realized that he better quit complaining and start swimming, and then another wave crashed over him. As he struggled to reach the surface again, he realized he could not spare one ounce of effort in complaining or wondering. In his own words, he says, quote, I needed to conserve all my energy to swim and breathe and keep my head above water, end quote. As he reached the surface again and began to swim, it seemed almost useless as the sea tossed and tugged him in every direction and seemed unsatisfied with anything short of tearing him in pieces. And he began to despair a little and found himself once again underwater. Then he felt the hint of assurance again. In his own words, he describes what happened next. Quote, I seemed to sense the Savior calming the troubled sea, and I cried out in my heart, Master, help me. Oh, please, help me. The tiny light of peace started to widen and deepen. As I came to the surface the third time, swimming and actually staying above water seemed more plausible. There was extra help, and I was feeling it. I sensed that if I put forth all the effort I could, things would be all right. I began to swim once more. End quote. Eventually, the storm moves on, and Elder Groberg finds his companions uh, in the continued rough waters. They swim for hours. At one point, one of them finds a submerged rock that came close to the surface, and they are able to rest and keep their heads above water while standing on the rock. As they started swimming again, Elder Groberg thought, We all need assurances from time to time, such as a word of encouragement, an expression of love and confidence, or a rock to stand on in the midst of a sea of trouble. All these things, if heard or felt, even for a moment, give us courage to go on, to move forward. End quote. He committed himself to do better in giving encouragement and love to others more frequently. Eventually, they get to an island where they are able to find what is left of their boat and salvage it, and several days later are able to return home. What at first seemed like an unattainable goal of getting safely to dry land was able to be accomplished with the divine grace of Jesus Christ. I personally have a long way to go to become like God. When I take away two or three from infinity, it remains at infinity. It is an infinite gap that can only be overcome by an infinite atonement. That is why it is important for us to focus on an unattainable goal, because it turns us to the Savior. We would be incorrect to respond as Peter or the Gadarenes did, depart from me. Luckily for Peter, the Savior did not give up on him. Jesus responded, fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. I imagine that the words fear not brought much peace to Peter that just like he would eventually calm the raging physical storm of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus brought peace and stilled the raging soul of Peter. He followed up this calming influence by giving Peter at least a glimpse into his future. I am unsure what Peter saw with his spiritual eyes. He could have been given small glimpses of his future or perhaps seen it all. Regardless, he saw a light at the end of the tunnel that gave him hope enough to forsake all and follow the Savior. For the light at the end of life's darkest tunnels is the light and life of the world. 
I believe Christ stands on the shores of all our lives and points to distant lands of immortality and eternal life, saying, let us pass over. The choice is up to us whether we get into the boat or not. The promise is not that if we get in, that it will be smooth sailing. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, the promise is the exact opposite, that there will definitely be faith-threatening storms ahead. But the promise is also that if we stay in the boat with the Savior, things will be all right. I close today with the words of a hymn. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee, how great thou art. I testify of his greatness and his goodness. In his name, Jesus Christ, amen.